Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Friday, the 11th of June. Michael, how have you been since Wednesday? Fine, Gary, just fine. So, there are a couple of things we want to uh, go into today. There was a case of the British feminist who has won an employment uh, appeal. She says that she was uh, terminated due to comments she had made about transgenderism. That has now gone to the uh, Employment Appeal Tribunal and a fairly landmark result has been handed down because of that. We have the issue of private polling from the political parties. And we have a, a nice little story about how newspapers will publish literally anything without thinking, you know, stopping for a second and going, have we reported the opposite of that is true recently? Well, yeah, okay. I, I, I just think I thought we were going the way you phrased it, I thought it was going to be the Independent, which seems to just recycle stories every three months. Yes, there was, a, I assume you're talking about that uh, story on our dear friend, the ex-president Mary, coming out against baptism, which I believe she came out against several months ago. Mary, is, Mary has now become an Anabaptist. And you know what? Perfectly reasonable thing to be. The Amish, uh, Anabaptists, uh, Amish Mennonites, uh, Husserites, all Anabaptists, they believe, you know, you shouldn't be baptised until you have reached the age of reason and embraced uh, the Lord as your personal saviour. That's just not a Catholic position. I don't insist, she wants to be an Anabaptist, why not just be an Anabaptist? Why does she insist that all the other Catholics were perfectly happy with infant baptism, they have to change. The Catholic Church, which has actually preached infant baptism, or pedo-baptism, as it's called, since the very beginning, and for all sorts of reasons, it has to change. But the thing I feel I found odd about it, Gary, is not the story itself, although, you know, let's face it, it's a Mary story about Mary, so oddness is going to be part of it. It was the fact that I'm reading it, and it's a bit... Uh, haven't I read this exactly before? To the extent that... You know the way you when you Google a story, Gary, sometimes, and it comes up, and you think, oh, great, yeah, that's it. And then you think, ah, oh, hold on. And you check the date. It's actually from six months ago. It's just come up first in a Google search. So I checked it. No, no, tense. It is, I'm sure, almost exactly the same story as The Independent ran three months ago. But uh, it's recycling. It's reusing. It's giving it a fresh fresh airing to the belief. So it's, I'm, I'm not criticising. Well, I am, I suppose, criticising. But there you go. Uh, it's just, it, it, it was a real double. I'm sure I've heard this before. The thing I like most about these stories from uh, Mary, whether or not they're original or recycled, is the constant tone of, and if the church doesn't do this, it will die. Yeah. Uh, the, the, with the taglines, I don't know, I think it was actually connected to another story where she says something to the effect, uh, I'm paraphrasing, that if the church doesn't change its position on homosexuality, it will just like wither up and die. Now, I'm not saying that the Catholic Church in Ireland is in rude or robust health, in Ireland or indeed in the rest of Europe. Or globally, you know, I wish it well, but there you go. The notion that adopting the kind of, shall we say, we say progressive, liberal, on this is what's going to save the Catholic Church. And when are, you know, the, the, the lads in, what's it called, the Association of Catholic Priests, which is an association of priests who are Catholics, maybe, but certainly it's not a big thing. Like there's not elderly priests, a certain small-ish group of elderly priests. Now, they must know, Gary, that if you were to look at those denominations that have gone down that road, for good or for ill, I mean, you know, 
this may be the right road. This may be the moral road. It may be the correct road. It may be the virtuous road. But if you're talking about relevance or bums on seats or people in, this, in the pews, liberal, the liberal Protestant denominations globally have been in basically terminal decline for the last 40 years. I mean, some people would argue for a lot longer than that. But traditional Christianity, traditional liberal Protestant traditional religion, in, say in the United States, mainstream Methodists, mainstream Presbyterians, Episcopalians, same here, same in Europe, the Lutherans, whatever. They have adopted the same or similar moral postures on these social and sexual issues as the other church. And it hasn't worked. I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't worked even worse than what hasn't worked for, say, the Catholic churches. The only churches that are kind of holding or increasing tend to be very traditional churches. Orthodox churches, evangelical churches, or Catholic churches. And that makes sense, doesn't it, Gary? In a world, in a population which is becoming less religious, or more secular, or more distant, those people who are into religion are, far, are more likely to, you know, when they go, they, they're, 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 they're going to go full fat, aren't they? You're going to go full fat, sugar, caffeine included, the whole works. You're not going to go, meh. You're not going to go for something which could essentially be, you know, Unitarians. Lovely religion, very nice church in Stephen's Green, very nice people. But it's basically just like liberalism with a little bit of God. And it, I don't think that if, if you're going to bother to go to Sunday, get up on Sunday, is that what you're going to bother to do? Once upon a time, Unitarianism was a radical you know, multi-breaking also intellectually very, very powerful, politically influential, socially reformist, you know, great tradition there, along with groups like, say, the Quakers. But that's today, yeah. And yet she insists, oh, the church is going to wither up and die. It's all going to go away if they don't do this thing that I think they should do. But God bless her, you know. If that's what she says, it's that point. if that makes her happy. But does it make her happy? It does sound like Mary would enjoy a, a nice long convalescence in some sort of lovely, respectable Protestant denomination. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they'd enjoy her too. On the polling, Michael, on the, the issue we've seen with polling. So for those who, who aren't aware of this, the Indo broke a story there a couple of days ago saying that Sinn Féin had been using members of its party to poll members of the public for political purposes, and that those members had either not represented themselves as being from Sinn Féin, or had represented themselves as being from a polling company. Now, it's unclear if the polling company was actually absolutely fake, or if there was some legal entity behind it, and they were basically just having people come on casually for the day. It'd be trivially easy to set that up. It's not really of great importance, it's just sort of a note, I suppose. And this was broken, and then we started seeing Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil people come out and talk about how this was deeply sinister and menacing, and um, you know, questions had to be asked, Michael, severe questions. I did note that the, the company that the Sinn Féin lads were saying that they were polling for, its initials were I-M or A, or I-M RA. Yes. Now, I have to imagine that was deliberate. And I can only admire the sense of humour that came up with it. But I, I was looking at the story, and I was looking at these Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil TDs come out, 
And all I could think is, but they've all done that. That's what they do. And then, within about a day, it starts coming out that actually they've all done that. So Fine Gael have done it, Fianna Fáil have done it, the Green Party have done it. I, you know, maybe the Social Democrats haven't done it because they're so new and they're so small. But I would be surprised if any of the other parties had not done it. It's, it is the general thing that you do. If you're running, it says a general election, and you're running in a, you're running in your local, you're, you're running in a, in a particular constituency. Now, the chances are, well, the party won't give you the money for it, and you won't have the money, or you'll be too mean to spend the money, to do a poll in your constituency. It can be frightfully expensive. Like, polling, polling particularly from the likes of Red Sea or Ipsos, the top tier kind of people, is grotesquely expensive, particularly, like, they all do omnibuses where they're going to ask many, many questions to people and you can have questions put on. They can still be quite expensive, but for, like, constituency-level spoke polling, you're talking serious money. You're doing it, and particularly if you, you, you want it, if you want it, and you do, if you want it done in a particular... Uh, a restricted period of time and the results back quickly and with analysis blah 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 and you 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 want you, you want to do at least 700 because you you could do 600 maybe even 500 but then you're going to be like a sort of a six percent seven percent poll layer so uses that to you anyway what you do is you get a bunch of kids students if you can find them from or you, you borrow them from Maybe HQ will give you a letter. So you, you, you mock up a poll set of questions and you go and you knock on the doors. Now, you knock on the doors, you don't say, hi, I'm from Fine Gael or hi, I'm from Sinn Féin and I want to know who you're going to vote for. You you, you do it, and you might even do it by phone. And you try and get as many answers as you can and then you try and knock out some kind of a a demographic breakdown so you have roughly as close as you can because you're not going to get a, a proper poll thing but it'll give you an idea it'll give you a, a reasonable idea of where you're standing every I, I i don't understand gary that there are people out there in, who are involved in politics at, at senior level in political parties like you say or, or Finnegan, who are a guy acting like they didn't know that people did this may if they didn't know where were they Internal polls are a big thing that's reported on by, you know, well-placed reporters yeah, who can be yeah. leaked these polls when they're advantageous to the party in question. Where the fuck did they think those polls were coming from? Now, I would say the thing about internal polls is I would say seven out of ten of internal polls have never been taken. They're just pure fictions invented usually in a constituency where you have maybe two people from the same party in dire competition with each other and they're trying to generate certain kind of narrative. Michael, are you suggesting that major political parties have been, shall we say, faking polls and perhaps even doing the graphics of a poll so they could feed them to media sources they know have no capability <laughs> to check that they're actually legitimate and that this has been going on for years? All I can say, Gary, is I have personally never been involved in that and I have never had hand actor part in it. I never was involved in any of the press briefings connected to it and uh, was not responsible for the design or the promulgation of any of the polling data that was used. And Michael, would, it, would, it, would you indeed allege that sometimes these polls are conducted in such a way that perhaps the local candidate thought there were polls? <laughs> yeah. 
Yes, yes, indeed. And you know, the funny thing sometimes that will come out, Gary, is that uh, it's, it's very obvious that if they want to take two seats, one candidate really has to be given more of the constituency and that the other candidate is doing surprisingly well and is safe and doesn't need any extra help. Or sometimes the other candidate is doing so badly that they just have no hope and all the resources should be put into just one candidate alone. You get unusual results from these things. Anyway, but it is also true that there are other times where there are actual polls done by students and volunteers. Also, Gary, when Amorak or, or Ipsos or whoever comes to your door, they're being paid by a political party as well. They don't say, hi, this is Amorak. Fianna Fáil have asked us to find out who you're voting for, which is essentially the same thing. Yeah, I, this is the thing I, I quite liked on some of the stories about this. There were representatives from the various polling companies talking about how this would undermine public trust and all of the steps they take to ensure it and, you know, how you couldn't have people just collecting this information and no one knows who it's going to. And Michael, as a man who's commissioned more than a few polls, I've never had my fucking name on one. <laughs> You know, this is this this poll was designed by and for Gary Kavanagh. Yeah. We hope you enjoy it. Like I've commissioned polls, the EBI has commissioned polls. Polls have been commissioned by Finnafall Finnegale through the legitimate polling companies. You yes. you don't get told. So I this sort of well, if people find out they were being polled and that it was actually so a political party could make use of it, it will destroy their trust in the polling process. Well, it's not like you disclose the information, is it? Also, I would point out that there are the idea of public trust in polling companies. Members of the public will openly lie to polling companies, not accidentally, but deliberately to throw off your results. Because people are bastards. And also, it's kind of funny occasionally to do it, so I can absolutely understand why you would. I've been polled twice, and in, on, in both occasions I've lied. Um, the way I lie... It's this is just this purely to amuse me. It, my my eye is always who I previously voted for and who I'm voting for now. I always try. I pick two parties that make it that they they just they, you can feel them going. How did the fuck did that happen? You went from from them to the or, I you know this this is not going to work with their algorithm. Nobody's going to work out. Not one one. Anyway. One little one voice isn't probably going to make enough, but it it, it amuses me to think that it it'll it, it'll 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 gum up the works. It, it is actually a relatively common thing in Ireland. Actually, weird enough, from talking to people I know who are involved in politics, there seems to be a thing where people who work in politics deliberately lie to pollsters more, <laughs> and it's purely done for amusement. The um, the poll. Which is kind of useless in a sense. The only poll that seems to be good to, to be accurate these days is the exit poll. Now the exit poll seemed to be very good indeed, but the last number of years, opinion. Oh no, that's probably not fair either. It, opinion polls. It depends on what you expect of them. In some senses, they've been pretty accurate. In some other ways, you may other people might say they've been a disaster. Close enough. I work on the assumption that everyone is lying, but because everyone is lying, it all just evens out. <laughs> it's like there's a kind of an osmotic agreement. They're all going to lie in the same direction. They were, and it all works out in the end. It's an Irish solution to an Irish problem. I've never understood why that was a bad thing. 
the people who say, oh, typical an Irish solution to an Irish problem. You go, yeah, well, Chinese solution to a Chinese problem. It's been presented as a scandal, and I'm not even sure most of the political correspondents have been able to work up you know, the, the requisite amount of outrage here. I would say, for those not in the business, it is a very dry time for news right now. So this is just going to keep going because there is nothing else to talk about. Unless you want to talk about that by-election more, and I could really go the rest of my life without talking about that by-election. The definition, almost, of inside baseball. I don't know. I mean, here's the thing. We were both aware that this happened and just didn't think it was a story. But is this something that the public actually looks at and says, that's actually outrageous? Because this is, this, is this is just the way Irish politics has been done. No, I don't think they probably give a fuck about this. The only way they might care is if they if there was a, a sense, which I don't think is the case, that what Sinn Féin were doing was that they were keeping tabs on them personally and recording them that somewhere some, there was a database which had your Jerry Murphy voted year this far, year that far. And I think they might find that a bit uncomfortable. Simon Harris being wheeled out to say that this was an outrageous thing, an absolutely outrageous thing. At nearly exactly the same time, the Fine Gael were admitting they had done the same thing. Yeah, Leo comes out and says, yeah, he, he used uh, students back in 2011. But this has happened in multiple Fine Gael constituencies and multiple Fine Fáil constituencies. It's, it's perfectly normal. Oh, yeah. I, I remember Carlo Kilkenny. There was the, it was dueling banjos when it came to uh, uh, these opinion polls. At one stage, there were around three of them in the field, and there was, there, was a, there was perceived to be a danger that one of them might even exist. And sometimes, Michael, if you were to do these things, you could do them for purposes other strictly than you know, polling. You could, for instance, ask member of the public what they would think if, oh, let's say, a particular opponent of yours had done something that they may or may not have done. But you're not saying they did it. You're just asking people what they would think if they had had an affair. What would you feel about that? And then, of course, you walk away with a... That was a very specific question, wasn't it? So it's almost like some people may have, in fact, used these as weapons occasionally. Yeah, that, that you, could, you could say that I could possibly comment. That was the kind of thing. There's two things I think are, are noteworthy about this. One, that Irish politicians were willing to come out and talk about this when they should have known they... Like their party had also done it. Maybe not in their constituency, although I kind of expected most constituencies. At some point, yes. So you have that. You, you have the fact that these people are coming out when they should have been aware that, you know, the hammer is going to fall on us pretty quickly. Because too many people know. So once it becomes an issue for one party, they're going to start, people are going to start figuring out pretty much quickly because they'll be told. And then you have the second one of how badly organised are these people? that head office did not start going, lad, shut the fuck up, because this is going to come back to us. Like, to have Harris out talking about how horrible this is, at the same time you have to have the leader of your party say, actually, we've been doing this, is just a level of disorganisation which is actually quite impressive. I also just don't get the fact, is it possible that Harris didn't know that this was just standard? Well, here's, here's the thing. I would be very interested to see, when you look at, let's say, maybe some of the TDs who aren't as good at constituency work or don't have as much a handle 
on what's going on with the party in their area? Are these the people who thought this was absolutely horrible because they legitimately didn't know it had been happening in their areas? I just, I, I don't think it's a story. I don't think anybody out there cares about it. I think that, Gary, we are coming out of a pandemic and very shortly we're going to be seeing levels of unemployment and levels of inflation, which are going to be reminiscent of the worst days of the oil crisis in the 70s. And I think that when that happens and the incapacity and the inability of the Irish political establishment is shown to be completely incapable of responding to it, stories like this are going to look very, very minor indeed. On the employment issue, we're actually, we're trending the right way, Michael. We're now down to, you know, 22%, somewhere in that region. Is that, God, Jesus, God, give the man a medal. Well, Michael, we were, we were in April of 2020. We had an unemployment rate when you take in the COVID payment of 30%, 30.5%. In April of 2021, we were down to 22.4%. So that's including people on the COVID unemployment basis uh, payment. So it sounds, on the face of it, absolutely ridiculous, yes. But getting to 22% unemployment is a significant move in the right direction. Hard to imagine, and I'm sure for the younger viewers out there, it's, it's impossible. But when I was a teenager, unemployment rates in Ireland were up around 18 and 19%. And the number of employed in the country was less than a million. So as in Ireland, the, the economy today isn't just about the number of people who are unemployed. Far more important is the number of people who are actually employed. My, my interest here on the unemployment rate is I think we might have a V-shaped recovery, Michael, on the unemployment rate. I, I expect we will have a V-shaped many things, Gary. So I suspect what will happen is unemployment will continue to fall as things reopen, but there will have to come a point where the subsidies stop to businesses. And if that's done incorrectly, we're going to see businesses fold at an astonishing rate. And then unemployment will shoot right back up. And it's a question of how well can we manage that. We have the case of Maya Forstatter, what this involves is a, uh, a woman in England. She was uh, working in a think tank. She was also kind of a, a feminist activist type, deliberately or inadvertently, I'm not quite sure. But she put up on Twitter some opinions about the transgender issue, things like trans women are actually male. And she was big on the idea that gender is, is not really a thing of importance, it's sex that should be important. A couple of her co-workers took issue with this, brought it to her place of employment. Her contract was not then renewed. She wasn't fired, but her contract wasn't renewed. She brought that to an employment tribunal, arguing that she had been discriminated against based on a protected philosophical view under the Equality Act. In that case, the judge said that while it was a philosophical view that she held. It was not worthy of respect in a democratic society. I thought that was remarkable. I really, I also thought it was an, an example, if we, want another, if we wanted another one, of those months when judges really should say as, as little as possible, just give the judgment and go, rather than opining philosophically about the case. But just listen to that. Not worthy of respect in a democratic society. Now, part of that is due to legal necessity, because to find that her views were not protected, 
they needed to be knocked out from uh, under the Equality Act, and that was one of the ways to do it. So she obviously appealed that, saying it was a disgraceful uh, ruling and should never have happened that it, the judge was letting their personal views on the matter influence their law. So it went to the um, went to the Employment uh, Appeals Tribunal. That judgment was handed down yesterday at about 10 a.m. and the judges, uh, the tribunal found that uh, basically gender critical views, views that say that biological sex is real, important, immutable and should not be conflated with gender identity are protected philosophical views under the British Equality Act of 2010 and that Moya had been discriminated against by her employer. They also gave quite a long piece on when it would actually be acceptable to say that someone's views are not uh, are not due respect in a democratic society. They said you know, views akin to Nazism, totalitarianism, but that a person is free in a democratic society to hold any belief they wish, subject only to some modest objective minimum requirements. And although her beliefs may cause offence to trans persons, the potential for offence cannot be a reason to exclude a belief from protection altogether. They also said it was clearly not a belief that seeks to destroy the rights of trans people. And then they made some broader points that the court should not be intervening in ongoing societal debates, that the mere existence of a Gender Recognition Act in England did not mean that members of the public must believe that a trans person can change their sex, and that in a pluralistic society, views that are profoundly offensive must be tolerated. Now, the interesting thing is going to be the impact of this, because it now means that if you hold these views and you, you talk about these views, let's say on Twitter or the like, you cannot be sacked by your employer for those views. The judgment did go into great extent that you cannot harass trans people or you cannot assault trans people and you cannot do anything negative to trans people. But Gary, that's a very important thing that they said that you can say these things you you can't harass or abuse whatever but you can say these things now implicit in that is that stating your shall we say gender critical opinion is not in a, a is not in of itself an act of abuse or harassment now that's important because part of this debate is framed like to to make the even the statement of an opinion as an act of harm the statement of opinion is an act of violence in the previous judgment which went against her the judge said that uh, she was not entitled to ignore the rights of a transgender person and quote the enormous pain that can be caused by misgendering enormous pain gary and that is part of the the, the strategy that's been used here is this concept creep where we go from offense to abuse to harm to dam to, to, to actual damage the idea that offense language is actual violence that offense is actual harm that you uh, by simply by saying these things this is a, a form of assault what they have done here it seems to me on the face of it i said you, you can say that you can't assault a person, you can't abuse, that's normal, that's the law, but you can say these things. And implicit in that is that language is not of itself. Offence is not in simply of, of itself an act of violence. It's not, a, an, it's not harm, it's not violence, it's not, a, if you like, it's therefore not a tort. 
That's really important. So the interesting thing I think about this ruling is that people have been complaining that if you are trying to have a debate on this issue, there's really only one view you can state or people are going to pretty immediately go after your employers and argue that you should be sacked and that this was effectively being used to chill what should be an ongoing societal debate because mm -hmm. large amounts of the public do not believe that you can change your sex and do not hold to a lot of the gender sort of orthodoxy we've seen. This would seem to give space for that conversation to happen because now with both views protected under the equality law, it makes it a lot more difficult for employers or for government or for really anyone to interfere in it. Now, I don't know if we might see what we're starting to see in you know, certain American companies where they simply send around a, uh, a missive to everyone saying you no longer talk about politics. I think that that's what you are going to see increasingly and it, it's rather sad. But shall we say companies, particularly those companies that are being run by entrepreneurs that are not madly woke or wildly progressive, have decided, okay, when you're at work, talk work, talk business. Don't get into issues that are going to be controversial or, or cause potential offence. That's not what we're at work to do. I think it's kind of sad that you can't have adult people talking to each other in an adult way and assuming that they will respond like adults and not like children. But you can't assume that anymore. So I suppose businesses have to protect themselves. And that's uh, away you go. You, Gary, there's just one thing. I mean, it's not an obvious kind of thing, but... Did it strike you that there's something slightly odd that is ex which is made explicit in this judgment? It talks about the fact that her belief in biological sex is an acceptable philosophical view, right? And it has long struck me thinking when, about the, the, the transgender issue of the debate and the, uh, that goes on around it, and that it's increasingly, when you listen to it, these are debates that are about identity, and they're they're kind of metaphysical rather than anything else. What is who am I? What is a woman? These are metaphysical questions, questions of identity. That we have we have got to a stage where the definition of woman is no longer biological. Nobody's talking about biology or science or genetics or XY chromosomes or any of that nonsense. None of that old nonsense, Gary. This is now a philosophical opinion. What is a woman? is a philosophical issue. And I think that's kind of funny, but it's also kind of mad, is it not? I mean, the interesting thing about the, uh, I think about the initial ruling that she appealed was that I know at the time legal experts had argued that that could be read as the tribunal effectively, let's say, state endorsement to force, or for employers to force employees to positively endorse um, gender theories. Because if, if the other view was not worthy of respect and you could be sacked for it. Well, why wouldn't you be able to do that? So this, I think, was actually an important victory also for getting rid of that earlier one. I mean, the other thing or point is that throughout all of this, four staters uh, repeatedly said that she had no issue with trans people in general. It simply was that um, they should not be discriminated against. They should be respected. But I don't believe them to be a woman, or I don't believe them to be a man, and I shouldn't have to say that. But that's, isn't that the core of the issue that increasingly, in this particular debate, but not only in this area, but in many of the, the most, shall we say, the most woke uh, uh, opinions, it's not enough 
anymore that you are tolerant of difference. It's not enough that you respect the rights of individuals. It's not enough that you do not discriminate against them and you are polite and respectful of them. No, you must believe simply enough that there is a, a polite coexistence. You have to actually bend your head and say, yes, credo, credo, I believe, I accept. I, it's, it's, an, it's an act of submission almost, an act of surrender, that we, you bow the knee, you go under the yoke. It's an incredibly totalitarian position. The interesting thing I thought in, in England, and it won't happen here if we see a similar case, is their Equality and Human Rights Commission came out in favour of her. And they submitted evidence to the court saying that we believe her views are, are protected, and by, both by the Equality Act and by human rights law. God, that, that England place sounds lovely, doesn't it, Gary? I know NGOs may not be great overall, but seem on their core issues, Michael, to actually have standards. And judges do this kind of thing, like in the Kira Bell thing and this, and, 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 and vaccinate their people. I don't know, is it real? Or is it just a is it just a myth invented by Bojo? Honestly, God, no. Can you imagine any of our crew, any of our NGOs, taking a, a, a principled defence on, on a on a like say a free speech basis or a or a freedom of conscience basis that she had the right to say this, even if they didn't agree with her? You know, Michael, I would be shocked to see if the people pushing for hate speech and not only hate speech but hate speech that would have applied in this case would. Uh do so. It'd be kind of shameless if they did, having pushed for those laws. <laughs> well, shameless, I can imagine. But no, actually, no, you know, I can see a situation in which, in which they do. I can see a situation where they push for these laws. A case like this arises, garners public sympathy, and they then concerned that they will look bad, will come out uh, in support in some very mild fashion, just as a PR move. And sort of move very quickly by the point, uh, by the you know the fact that they caused this to happen. I don't know. I I I, I find it hard to imagine them coming to anyone's defence that they should. There you lots of lots of good opinion pieces in the Times and the the Examiner and how horrible these people are. Obviously, this is a British case. Its impact on Ireland will be limited. No, I wouldn't say there will be no impact because Irish courts do look to English courts quite a lot. They do, but it's not just a legal thing. I think it's a question of changing the water we swim in a little bit. It changes the atmosphere, it changes the, the background to these discussions. It's like the Bell case. Yeah, I think that was really important. Globally, globally important. That, and we have seen changes happening on the foot of that globally. We've seen changes in Germany, change, changes in Sweden, seen changes in, in the United States, where people say, okay, let's re-evaluate re where we're going here. Let's, let's take into consideration issues around uh, consent, around the long-term effects of these drugs, uh, whether or not uh, hormone blockers and, and cross-sex hormones are actually two different treatments, or is there are they just stage one and stage two of the same treatment? That kind of thing. Kirabin had a, had a big effect just because people came out and did this rather dispassionate, rather excellent dis analytical piece of work on the thing that nobody else had really done. The Irish Times published a piece there by Paul Cullen, their health editor, and it's titled Ireland only one of two European countries where drinking did not fall during pandemic. Yeah, you, you, you told me, 
I have to say, I had a bit of a double take when you told me that, because on what do they base this, Gary? What what's the uh, what is the evidence base for this claim? So what this is based on is there was a European-wide survey of this issue, and they I think they surveyed about thirty-two thousand people, about five hundred people in Ireland on their alcohol consumption habits, and people said that they were drinking about as much as they did before. Now. The problem with this is very simple. It's that we know from revenue that alcohol consumption declined by 6.6% last year. And we also know from the first three months of this year that alcohol consumption declined by 20%. So here's the, the odd thing. Paul Cullen has to be aware of that because Paul Cullen is the health editor. Now, we've previously complained about Paul Cullen not looking into the methodology of things that he reports on before after that vaping study with, uh, was it 15 people? Yeah. The dec- a decline at 6.6% in is a whopping big decline. Contextually, a decline which is just one of uh, a series which has been going back for around 20 years now. We we are heading for somewhere 25 to 30, well, actually it was. It's a 6.6% last year, maybe gone. I don't know. We may be up around 30% decline from our peak uh, alcohol consumption period at the beginning of the of the uh, this century surveys are notoriously unreliable because people can sometimes lie but a lot of times people don't really know like if you ask people well how much do you drink over an average month you can get an answer that's wildly a variance with reality because people don't really think about it and then you ask them for an exact figure and they just can't give it to you. There are many, many issues with surveys. Oftentimes they're the best information we have on an issue, but that's not the case here. We have the actual sale data. So we can tell from the sale data and you couldn't move around, which meant you couldn't go up the north and you can't order in alcohol into Ireland very easily. So it's not like there are other ways to acquire alcohol. I know the revenue data is as close as you're going to get to very, 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 uh, very accurate data. But even on the on the point of the of the survey, if somebody said to you, "Are you drinking more or less, more or less, or the same?" If you were within a, within the ambit of around five percent of your normal consumption, would you be one aware of that, or would you, t- or would you two consider that about the same as normal? I mean, I, th- I would say most individuals would consider around 5-6% of their consumption to be around normal and would, re- would report it as such. If you would drink over the course of a month, let's say 20 cans of Guinness, and you went down to 19, yeah, I think you probably would report that as broadly the same. Y- I think you'd be a rather a physical kind of person to think, no, no, I'm down 5%. The The thing I thought was interesting here, though, is that Paul Cullen, who should, given that his job as the health editor, have an awareness of these figures because they were actually reported, at least the the fall of the 6.6% one. And that became an issue when it was originally reported because, as Michael said, it was presented because the uh, NGOs in this area said it was a deluge of alcohol. It was a tidal wave of alcohol going to wash away your wife and children, uh, presumably to do horrible things with them in some alcohol-infused stupor. And then when that came out, people did push back on it and say, well, alcohol consumption fell by 6.6%. So that became a thing 
that he would presumably also have been aware of. But yet he reports this survey and at no point does he point out that we actually do have purchase data on this. Now, the thing about the survey, Michael, is the survey was carried out between late April and late July 2020. So arguably, this isn't talking about consumption over COVID at all. It's talking about COVID during like the first wave of the pandemic. Late April to late July. I would suggest there were certainly parts of Europe were far more, were far deeper into pandemic than we were in late April. There's a result from this he quotes that I, doesn't make sense to me. He says that consumption obviously remained unchanged in Ireland. In the UK, drinking frequencies and quantities consumed per occasion increased considerably, but binge drinking did not. I don't know how it's possible to square those two. I mean, it must be possible because he's written it down in a sentence in the Irish Times, but I genuinely don't know. Just for the sake of clarity, for the listener, a binge, according to the World Health Authority and um, Alcohol Ireland, which is the authority in this country that the government takes its lead from, is um, three pints. We won't get into alcohol units, etc. Three pints of beer will constitutes a binge. Now, if the the number of the frequency that people drank went up and oh by uh, and also by the way if you do if you uh, if you binge drink if you were to have three pints once a week you are now regarded as what's the as if, the language is, is so good is, um is it a persistent problematic drinker no it's worse than Anyway, once a week and you're you're in trouble. If you do it once a month, you're a binge drinker. If you increase the amount that people drink and the frequency, how do you not increase the binge? How does that? I'm drinking more often, and I'm drinking when I when I drink, I drink more. The only way I can see it actually being the case is if drinking, if those things are true but they only happened within a subset of people who drink so heavily that every time they drink, they are already binge drinking. Yeah. And even then, I, the frequency but, increase should, because then you'd have new incidences of drinking, bring up the binge drinking rate. I don't get, on. of course, one of the things that may be happening there, which you, you, you may be getting towards, is the fact that pretty well anybody who drinks is actually a binge drinker. Well, yeah, I mean, they keep lowering the level at which you are binge drinking because people started to drink less and then there was, well, we can't have that looking good, so let's bring down the levels. And let's bring down the levels. And now it's at three pints. And frankly, if you're going to go out and drink with someone and drink less than three pints, why are you even drinking? Now, again, there's a time limit on that. that that's within two and a half hours. So just to contextualize, Imagine you went out to the pub at nine o'clock and between nine o'clock and half past 11, you drank three pints. That would be a binge. That would have the other people in the pub sitting, looking at you askance going, oh my God, Kavna's on the thoth, binge drinking again. Do you see that? He's gone through three pints in the last two and a half hours. It's madness. 
Ele- nine o'clock, half past eleven, three pints. I I have been tempted to to, uh, to get somebody to ask from Gripped perhaps if this subject of health comes up or drink in the in with Leo Varadkar because Leo likes to drink. I no more in a perfectly normal, reasonable way. I'm not suggesting that Leo is anything any kind of a problem with alcohol at all. But I'm fairly sure. I'm fairly confident, Gary, that Leo Varadkar is a binge drinker. And I'd like someone from Crypto to say, you know, is it really, can we really take seriously health advice from a binge drinker who's also a doctor? I mean, come on. Just to make the point that they, they have set these levels at such a ridiculously low point that they're, they're essentially becoming, but because if people don't read underneath, they don't read the, the footnotes, it creates this sense of, oh, my God. Well, I found the, the NHS definition of binge drinking has always kind of amused me because their, their definition is drinking lots of alcohol in a short space of time or drinking to get drunk. Yeah, and actually that makes more an awful lot more sense to me. I, I think that if you're drinking to get drunk and you're doing that on a regular basis, well, that's a, that's a big red flashing light. That's a bad thing. If you're sort of 17 to 21 and you occasionally do this, it's I, it's not something I was as a young, young man into. Later on in my later 20s, I did drink semi-professionally. But if you're doing that a lot, if you're drinking to get drunk, that essentially means you're drinking for oblivion. That, that's, that would be a bad thing. But drinking three pints in two and a half hours, is not drinking to get drunk. Or if you can get drunk on three pints in two and a half hours, well, you're a cheap date. Listen, my, my interest here particularly is that Paul Cullen, I would suspect, or maybe not Paul Cullen, but a reasonably informed person on this topic, would know that the survey does not match with any of the other data. And might, Michael, make a point somewhere as to exactly why that might be. But this doesn't. The only thing that this very helpfully notes is that while pubs in Ireland have been shut, off-licence have remained open throughout, which sort of indicates that you know people are buying this in off-licences, which would again seem to indicate perhaps you should mention the retail data that shows that, no, that's actually not happening. Well, yeah, you could, except... It may be that you're what you actually want to achieve from your article is close the off licenses. Well, I mean, maybe you don't like alcohol either, and you want to make a general point on that. But in that instance, you know, you think you would still put in pertinent information that seems to indicate what you're writing about is not correct. I mean, it's all very lovely that a survey says something and that there were 500 people asked, and that's all very, very lovely, as I said. But maybe you might want to point out that you know that that's bullshit in the article about it rather than just writing it and saying that your job here is done? Yeah, I, I think it wouldn't be unreasonable. And considering the, the, the revenue figures, it's not that long ago since we had the revenue figures. I mean, the revenue figures would have been published uh, Paddy's week, so sometime in the middle of March. And the, uh, the new revenue figures, they're revenue clearance figures for the first quarter. So they only came out at the end of May, the like 26th of May is when Drinks Ireland reported on it. So that's, that's up to date. I don't, I haven't seen the, all the figures, but I, I, talked to, I was talking to a chap a while ago and he was saying that the numbers for this year seem to be 
really down quite seriously though. So last year, alcohol consumption levels fell to their lowest level in 30 years. And we have the Irish Times reporting no change in consumption. But that's horseshit. And as I said, maybe Paul Cullen doesn't know it's horseshit. But considering this is his job, if he doesn't know, perhaps he should have. Then questions should, questions need to be asked. And answers need to be provided. According to Drink Ireland's, the average alcohol consumption in 2020 was 29.8% lower than 2001. Yeah, that would be. That's, you know, we're, hitting, we're heading for around 30% decline off off the peak. When we, we had a binge, we, in the, ni- the 90s, the, we, had, we went through, that was a, it's, it's kind of funny. The 1890s was called the Great Binge in uh, Europe and Britain. We, did, we waited 100 years and we had our, our Great Binge in the 1990s. And we have been declining ever since. And by the way, I, I know I always make this point. I just want to make this point because the changes that are being introduced in alcohol pricing are based on the assumption that there is a connection between price and consumption, that if you increase price, then you will decrease consumption. Now, I think that's true, but the idea that that will necessarily be uh, problematic drinkers who will decline, that's another issue. However, the last in, since 2001, when we've seen this decline in drink has happened at exactly the same time as we have seen the m- most significant decline in al- retail alcohol prices in the history of the state because the German multiples, and possibly even the large English multiples, have used drink sales and low-cost uh, drink uh, to get people through the doors. It has never been cheaper to drink than it has been for the last 20 years. Reach, I mean, the gap between the off-sale and the on-sale in Ireland has never been bigger. And yet, that in, in that context, we've seen this almost 30% decline. This is what Paul Cullen reports on. So he should be a relative subject expert on this, considering that alcohol is, is very much entwined with public health in Ireland. He should know from them that somewhere in the region of 55 to 65% of beer sales in Ireland come from pubs, hotels, that sort of thing. Yes. Places that are closed, or pubs, restaurants and the like. And he should have really looked at this and just went, how could that be true? Because he know he, he should know roughly how much alcohol is consumed at home versus how much alcohol is consumed out. And a significant enough quantity that it would be very difficult for people to have suddenly started drinking so heavily at home to offset that entirely doesn't really make a lot of sense. No, especially when you consider that people's, the average person's drinking habits. Some people like to drink at home. But we know from survey data and in just for being alive and talking to human beings, there are people like myself, for example, who don't really drink at home, but do like to drink what we call, as we'd say, socially. I like a pint in a pub. If I have friends uh, friends to the house for dinner or something, I'll lash in a few glasses of wine, maybe gin and tonic before dinner, whatever. But if I'm just sitting at home, I like tea. And a lot of people, and we know that a lot of people in Ireland are like that. They, the primary locus for their, 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 their alcohol consumption is outside the home, either in restaurants or in pubs and in a social situation. And if you take that social situation out, they don't drink. 
But anyway, I just wanted to, primarily wanted to bring this up as it's an interesting story, not in what it's about, because I think what it's about is obviously false. It's, it's just not correct on it, and it can't be. But that it got published, and published uncritically, when the person publishing it should, I can't say definitely was, but should absolutely have had enough information to look at that and go, that just doesn't look right. I don't know why you'd publish it. I don't, I don't really know if you're a serious newspaper and you have an ed with an editor, how you publish it with, without adverting in some sense. Because this is a newspaper, guy. It's supposed to be news. News that contains, if you unpack it, the traditional understanding of that was that this was, they were going to give you facts. And Joe Hockey, I don't think that that is an article which is actually giving you facts. I think, interestingly enough, if you came out with this in a normal time, it would be easier to sway it because you could argue that people are going outside the state for alcohol, that they're doing whatever. And so there's a divergence in the figures that won't show up in the revenue figures. Unfortunately, they picked a year to do it when you can't travel. Yeah, nobody's, well, I, I, I say nobody, virtually nobody is managing to get up to Newry to stock up in Asda. You're not popping across the border in Strabane for kind of thing. People are not getting, I have friends that would get a, would get a little uh, camper van kind of job thing and they go over to France and fill it up with uh, with wine and come back on the ferry they can't they haven't done that and there are quite a few people doing that nowadays actually it's, i might do it myself but you can't do that now you haven't been able to do that this year so no the figures this year are ironic are are, are, are ironically are, are more bulletproof than you would normally expect them to be anyway, we will be back on sunday i think well you will be back gary it's doubtful whether uh, because i have uh, unfortunately I'm going to the land of uh, very little internet connection, so we should leave that open. It may be, it, it may be, it may be a Gary, I'm promising, I don't want to promise here now, but it may be a Gary special. A delight for young and old alike. Yeah, everybody says they're their favourite shows. So we will be back on, I will be back on Sunday, then we will be back on Wednesday, and then as we mentioned in the previous episode, we will be gone for maybe a week and a half, as we actually are taking. A holiday. This is why Gary never lets me learn how to put the shows up online because he's terrified that when he goes away I might engage in some terrible act of insurrection and put up slanderous libels, defamatory, revolutionary inciting, blood curdling stuff just because he's gone away. Now I'm concerned that if I leave you to it I'll come back and you'll have accidentally uploaded something which is just 15 minutes of you screaming at technology. You know that could be art. It's, it's the opposite of art. So, anyway, we'll be back whenever we're back. Have a good day. All the best.